Would you open God's precious holy word to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to be in verses 15 through 20 today. The first three chapters are the chapters of position, our position in Christ. The last three chapters, the practicality of Christianity, how we walk. Once we know who we are, now we are told how to be, what to do. That we might live our lives pleasing to the Lord and in distinction as Christians in the fallen world where we live. So the analogy in the practicality of Christianity in these last chapters so far that we've seen in verses four and five, the, ana the analogy is walking. We are in a walk through life as Christians. So here is what we've been told so far, and they are all in the imperative in the Greek text, which means it's, it's like a command. We walk in humility. We walk humbly. We walk in unity together. We walk differently. We're unique. Our walk is different from the walk of the world. We walk in love. We walk in light. Today, we walk in wisdom. So let's continue to learn about the practicality of our Christian lives as we continue the teaching of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in verses 15 through 20. This first slide, we're going to extract three ideas, three thoughts, three parts of the instruction. So carefully discern how you walk. The Greek word is akribos. The root of that word produces the English word acrobat. If you're going to get in front of a bunch of people and flip and walk on a stick and, and jump and all those things, you're going to have to do it precisely, exactly, and carefully. If you perform precisely and exactly, you're applauded. If you mess up, you're laughed at. You might wind up breaking a bone or something. An acrobat. This is the careful walk of a Christian. We are always, I think in some translations, it may say walk circumspectly. That's like walking carefully. Looking around, making sure that each step is the right step. This is the beginning of walking in wisdom for a Christian. 
So carefully discern how you walk, not as fools. Now the Bible has quite a bit in both Testaments to say about being a fool, foolishness, folly. You can take a, a Strong's Concordance and you can take one for the for the New American Standard and take one for the King James. And you can take those words, fool, fools, foolish, foolishness, folly. And you can see how the Bible describes a fool. The chief characteristic of a fool is, he says there is no God. Only the fool says there is no God. A fool. So the foundation of being a fool is not to believe in God. What, what is produced from that? Well, you don't believe his word. Therefore, you have no anchor for life. You have no moral compass. Every kind of sin imaginable can eventually be produced in your mind and then be enacted by your behavior. And you can even get to the point that you not only don't, don't believe there's a God, but you don't feel any conviction of sin, totally hardened in the heart, and then become one who mocks sin and who makes fun of those things that are otherwise taught in the Bible. That's a fool. Carefully discern how you walk. Number one, don't walk as a fool, but walk as wise. So, the, 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 the Greek word for wisdom has a different connotation than the Hebrew Old Testament word for, his, for wisdom. The New Testament word speaks of uh, intellectual philosophizing thinking about it and talking about it but talking about it to the point that it becomes so esoteric that it's it's never seen as something that is attainable in behavior the hebrew word is a little different the hebrews didn't think of wisdom as something that was just intellectual and nothing else the hebrew word teaches that wisdom is not wisdom until it is enacted in one's behavior. This is more the way that the Greek word is used in the New Testament with regard to Christians. You don't just think about it. This is how you act. This is your behavior. It starts out as intellectual knowledge and you're taught these things but you can't be just a hearer of the word. You must also be a doer of the word. And that is the Christian teaching regarding wisdom. It has to do with walking. Walking is behavior. Walking is a journey, an active journey through life. Every step has to be carefully discerned. Always watching for the enemy. Always watching to do the right thing. 
Now he builds on that. Second thought, redeeming the time. Okay, so time is karon. It is not chronos or it's, it's uh, karon. Now here's what that means. It means a series of events that has a beginning, that, that have a beginning and that have an end and they progressively move. The first thing, the next thing, the next thing. This is life, you see. Life is moving. The psalmist says in Psalm 90, Lord, give us wisdom so that we can number our days. It's very important for a Christian to realize the importance of time. You never gain time back. It's gone. Once you've taken the next step, that past step is gone. Here is how to discern how you walk and being wise, redeem the time. Now the word to redeem is a word that means to pay a ransom or to buy it back, to purchase it, to make it yours. So make sure that when an opportunity comes, the opportunity is seized. In a fallen world, for a Christian to have the opportunity to do the right thing and the pleasing thing to the Lord is fleeting and somewhat rare in many lives. The opportunity to please the Lord, the opportunity to do the right thing, the opportunity to produce Christian behavior, to be an effective Christian in the sight of others. This is, this is what it, I suppose you could say to seize the opportunity when it comes because time is moving for you. You're getting older and older and older until you die. And all of those opportunities are now gone. You won't ever get them back. They're gone. If we're going to discern how we walk and we're going to walk in wisdom, the first thing is to make sure that in the best of your ability, you spend your time and seize the opportunities that God gives you, that you live like a Christian and that you're on display like a Christian and that there's never a wasted moment, never a wasted opportunity, never wasted time. This is extremely important. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. The days are malicious. Think of a standard day in your life at work, at school. How many evil things are thrown at you moment by moment, hour by hour? How many evil things do you see? How many evil things do you see other people engaged in with their lives? The days are evil. The days 
are malicious, evil, malicious days. This is the world we live in. The world is our enemy. We are the enemy of the world. There is a war going on. There is a spiritual war going on. As a matter of fact, part of Christian life, when we get to Ephesians 6, is to engage actively in the spiritual war and dress like a soldier, a spiritual warrior. We're not there yet, though. Because the days are evil, we're the only ones who can seize an opportunity to please the Lord and put it on display so that people can see Christianity at work. This is the practical living of a Christian to take every opportunity because the time is fleeting. All of the years behind you are gone. Yesterday is gone. I don't know how many opportunities we've had through the years, but you'll never have those opportunities again. They're gone. Number three, because of this, do not be foolish. Do not fail to seize the opportunities that God passes, passes through our lives. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Live your life, walk your walk, spend your time seeking to understand the will of the Lord and live in his will. Now, when you live in his will, you will understand the opportunities when they come. And you must redeem the moment, redeem the time, seize the opportunity, be a Christian. It not only includes not doing things like others may do in the world, but it also means to do, do, thing, means to do things that people don't ordinarily do. But that a Christian will do because it is an opportunity to be a Christian. So this is discerning how we walk. Walk in wisdom. Don't be foolish. Don't waste your time. And do not be drunk with wine in which is debauchery. There's a lot to be said here. I'm going to say some of it because I don't have time just to deal with this. Great is Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. Man, Ephesus was drowning in paganism. Because they worshipped false gods and goddesses. Long time ago, in order to hopefully seek to understand what early Christians were facing, I studied Greek mythology. <laughs> it's really weird to study Greek mythology. Let me, if I can remember this, because it deals with drunkenness. To the pagan mind, drunkenness 
was the highest state of consciousness because you, you entered into a state of ecstasy which opened you up for the opportunity to communicate with the gods. <laughs> that sounds like a drunk person, doesn't it? Oh, I see a God. Listen, I was 16 years a cop. I understand drunkenness. Nothing good ever comes from drunkenness. Drunkenness is condemned in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, there is a roll call of those who are in hell, and it includes drunkards. I understand there's a distinction between drinking and being drunk. But I have never, ever seen anybody get drunk on alcohol without having first taken a drink. I'll give you a personal experience. Uh-oh, here it comes. It was on a Sunday. I didn't get to come. Somebody had to fill in. I guess Michael filled in for me, but I, was, I had excruciating pain in my side. I thought it was appendicitis. Somebody had to drag me out to the car and took me to an emergency room. Man, I was hurting. And so in the emergency room, they wanted to do a, an MRI. And those three letters enraged me because I'm so claustrophobic. So we're going to do a CAT scan. I'm still enraged. I got to lay down flat. How long is it going to take? Ah, maybe 30 minutes. Uh-uh, I can't lay flat. I can't do So the doctor comes in and says, give him the little pill. And... They gave me the little pill. It was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. <laughs> I got on that cat I was My eyes were closed. Let me tell you where I was. I was either at Universal Studio or Disney World. I can't remember which. But it was an expanded version of a wonderful ride that Pat and the kids and I had taken when they were all little and there were stars and we passed through villages as we rode that boat or whatever it was we were going and it was dark over, it just twinkling and I never wanted to stop. It was so wonderful. And they... I even complained when they were through with the CAT scan. I said, I don't want to be through. I haven't finished the ride yet. They started slapping me around and waking me up. And it was just wonderful. But you know, I can't live like that. I don't know if that's like being drunk. I've never been drunk. Pat forced me to take a teaspoon of something one time for my cough because she couldn't go to sleep. And one of my staff members, what was it? Yeah, he said, this will fix you up. Well, I knew I was in trouble when it was in a brown paper bag and, and in an old mayonnaise jar. And I couldn't smell because, oh man, it was bronchitis. And I'd been coughing, I just wouldn't take this. He said, now brother Charles, you're gonna have to know it's got whiskey and honey and lemon juice in it. I said, I can't take that. Oh, oh. 
After three nights of losing sleep, Pat said, you're going to take this with you like it or not. And it was like, I, that's the only time in my life I've ever had, now I've had NyQuil or something, but I've never had this stuff. And it was like molten lava. I could feel it all the way down. And it hit my stomach. Poof. Now that didn't make me, it made me sleepy, I guess. I don't know. Point is, I've never been drunk. I can't give you a personal description of being drunk. I know what it's like to take a tiny pill in the ER. And I know what it's like. The thing smelled, that tablespoon of stuff, it kind of smelled like a garbage dump. It was just awful. And I can't remember if it, it fixed, you up. It fixed me up. Okay. Pat got a night's sleep finally. Now today we don't have any kids. She can just go to another bedroom if she wants to, if I'm making too much noise. But uh, I know this. Back to paganism. The teaching of pagans is that drunkenness carries you into such ecstasy that you can communicate with the gods. It involved wild music and wild dancing and perverted behavior. It started like this, if I can remember this. Because I think, frankly, this is important to understand the concept of, of drunkenness and the biblical worldview regarding it. Zeus was the chief god of the Greeks. He was god of gods. He got to checking out a pretty woman on earth who was just a human. But a human could never stand in the presence of Zeus because if they stood in the presence of Zeus, they became immediately incinerated. Her name was Semele. Semele. So he decided that uh, he wanted her to have his baby. And without her ever being in his presence, She was with child by Zeus, though they had never been around each other. It's all there. You'll have to read the book. She decided that she couldn't stand it. She wanted to know what the father of her child looked like. So somehow she was able to sneak into the presence of Zeus. When she looked on Zeus, she began to incinerate. Just at the last moment, Zeus, realizing what had happened, reached in, and the last thing left that had not yet been incinerated was the baby in her womb. He took it, and he sewed it to his thigh. <laughs> so he carried this baby around on his thigh until it was time for the baby to be delivered. Now, Zeus had determined... That this child of his would rule the earth. But you see, there was a problem. There were these lesser gods already ruling the earth. They were called titans. 
So when they realized that Zeus was going to make this baby of his the ruler of earth, they snuck around, grabbed the baby, and tore it limb from limb. The last thing was the baby's heart. Zeus, recognizing what had happened, raced, grabbed the heart, and ate it. Heart of his baby. And now he's carrying this child within himself. <laughs> I think the guy who wrote all this was drunk anyway. So finally, Zeus gives birth to the baby. Who? <laughs> all right. So he said, okay, you're going to rule the earth. You, you will be the God of the earth. You will rule the earth. And he named him Dionysus. Dionysus is the God of wine. It was the will of the pagan god Zeus that wine would rule the world. The Romans called him Bacchus, Dionysus. Zeus, <laughs> if there was a Zeus, Got a lot of things wrong. But the concept of the power of wine was not lost among the ancients. You understand? The power of drunkenness. This is why the Apostle Paul said, uh-uh. Wine cannot be your motivator as a Christian. The Spirit is your motivator. The Spirit of God is your energizer. This is where your power comes from. This is where you are able now to worship the true and living God. Debauchery, that Greek word means to be, to be filled in excess with wicked pleasure. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Get away from Diana, Artemis of the Ephesians. Forget, forget Dionysus. This is not the highest state of consciousness for a human when he worships God. He must be filled with the Spirit. May I say this? Both Testaments, there are about five, maybe five words that are translated wine. Fermentation is something that just couldn't be avoided. But the Hebrews, and then later, of course, the Christians, and well, the Jews, even in the New Testament, understood that wine had to be greatly weakened. And so they would put several parts of water or other, other herbal type juices that were in there. There's a, long, there's a big book that's been written about that. These days we have refrigeration. 
Now, someone will come along and say, well, you know, I'm a social drinker. My question is, well, what else do you do socially that is outside the parameters of real Christian behavior? And on top of that, you're not supposed to ever offend your brother by the meat you eat or what you drink. So let me just say, you will offend me if you drink. We're to be filled with the Spirit. I don't, I don't, I don't need my consciousness affected by anything but the Spirit of God. Now here's what happens. When you live in the presence of God and you walk wisely and you are filled with the Spirit, you substitute, you put spiritual things in the place of carnal, earthly, worldly things. Here's what happens. Number one, you will speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now a psalm, literally, it's, almost, it's, a, it's a song that is accompanied generally on a stringed instrument. Hymns, that's a sacred song. Spiritual songs. It says, speaking to each other in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Your heart is filled with joy and music. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Solentis, making melody. That, that literally means twing and twang. <laughs> it, it means to pluck a stringed instrument. So there's nothing wrong, okay, with musical instruments. And I like that he put this part in your heart to the Lord. I've heard a lot of people who just need to keep their singing in their hearts. <laughs> just saying. And then two more things. Being filled with the Spirit. It produce, produces a heart of gratitude for everything. God, I'm so thankful. Giving thanks at all time for all things. That's just straightforward. That's, that's self-explanatory. And then it produces a spirit of submission to the lordship and sovereignty of Christ the Lord. Here it says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. You come to the Father through the Son, filled with the Spirit. We are in submission to our Savior in all of these things. This is who we are in Christ. This is the highest level of consciousness for a Christian worshiper. It isn't drunkenness with wine. It is the fullness of the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit. The word filled up there in the Greek text uh, 
pleruste. Pleruste. It speaks of a sail being filled with wind so the vessel can be carried along. We set our sail to catch the Spirit of God when God chooses to blow it in our direction and He carries us along. Let my sail be filled with the breath of God, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, God the Spirit. And He will carry me where He intends for me to go. Walk in wisdom. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the teaching of your precious holy word. Oh God, help us to apply this to our hearts. We understand that every phrase is an imperative. It is an order, a command from an apostle. We're bound to obey. Help us in this obedience to walk in wisdom in this life and in this world as Christians. Our invitation is threefold here today as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. You have three needs that are eternally important to your life. Number one, to be saved. Number two, after you're saved, to participate in believer's baptism. It's part of the Great Commission for a believer to be baptized. God says to do it, that means that it has profound effects on others. And finally... To be an active part of a local Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. This invitation today is to those who have one or two or all three of those needs. In just a moment before we're dismissed, if God speaks to your heart about this, we have deacons and their wives just in the rooms as you exit, you'll see them standing in the doorway. They will help you with these decisions. Father God, now, thank you so much for bringing us together. For the depth and beauty of your word. Now give us strength as we leave this place to live for you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today.